We have a result. Okay, great. Wrap up those conversations. Let's uh, turn to Scripture. We're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. You can follow in the Pew Bible, page 990, or you can follow on the screen. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. What do you like as a party animal? Do you love parties? Are you the sort of person that, you know, the idea of a party, great. Somebody says to you, hey, we can go to a party tonight as soon as this is finished. Are you off and into it? Or are you that kind of person who thinks, oh, parties, oh, please, no, do I have to go? I'd rather sort of curl up and die than have to go to a party. Because the world falls into those sort of two sort of camps. I understand in primary schools, the party invitation is a real weapon. And uh, classes divide up. And the mantra is, you're not coming to my birthday party. And uh, that's how you sort out who's in and who's out. And sometimes it gets so bad that you see the stories in the paper where head teachers are banned party invitations in the class. Because an invitation to a party can be a bit of a political thing, can't it? You know, we get invited to somebody's party or to a wedding reception or to something or other, and we think, do I have to go? Who's going to be offended if I don't go? Jesus told a story about a party, a party given, a banquet given for the wedding of the king's son. It's part of a a series, a bit earlier in Matthew 21, the religious leaders get around Jesus and they question his authority. You know, why are you saying the things that you're saying? Who gives you the right to do it? And he flings a question back at them, which they can't or won't answer. And he won't give them his authority in straightforward, plain language. Instead, he tells them a series of stories. He tells them the story about two sons who are sent out to work. He tells them the story of tenants who are given a vineyard to manage. And then he tells them the story that we read tonight, the story of the wedding banquet. If parties can be a bit political today, they were even more so in Jesus' time. Eating and drinking with somebody was a significant act. 
when you ate with somebody, when you went into their house and broke bread with them and you drank with them, what you were doing is saying that you accepted that person, you endorsed them. And in the same way, if you refused to go to somebody's house and eat, you were snubbing that person. You were putting them down. You were saying, they are not worthy of my time and attention. That's why one of the criticisms that was thrown at Jesus was, he eats with sinners. In other words, he goes and he gives value to the riffraff, the scum of the earth, by eating with them. It was a shocking thing to do in those days. Now, this is a banquet given by a king. To refuse to eat with the king was pretty much treason. It was saying to the king, we do not accept your authority. So this is a little bit more than just whether people choose to go to the party or not. You'll notice there's a sort of system that's a little bit unusual for us in the, the business of sending the invitations and then sending the servants and then sending the servants Again, but that was the way things worked in those days. Yesterday, here in, in the church, we had a thing we call messy church. A messy church always finishes with a meal. The bit before it is up here in the sanctuary, and uh, Dawn tells a brilliant Bible story to all the kids and the parents. And then at 5.15 on the dock, they appear in the main hall to eat. And because a lot of the kids are only about this high, it has to be ready the moment they come in. Because otherwise, they're run around everywhere. So we've got it all down to a fine art in the kitchen, and everything is timed, and the food is out on the table, 5.15 as they come through the door. You couldn't do that in Jesus' time. Giving a party, especially a big party, was a much more complex thing. It required weeks of planning and preparation. Animals had to be slaughtered. Meat had to be hung. The things had to be cooked, not with wonderful uh, modern ovens, but, you know, over fires and the rest of it. So what you did was you sent out your invitations sometime in advance. And then when everything was ready, when the food was ready, it was cooked and everybody was, everything was okay, then you sent the servants out and said, okay, come on, folks, come along and join the party. And that's what's going on here, this invitation. They've had it, they know it's happening, and now the king says, right, the time's come to respond to turn up although it seems quite a straightforward story it's actually quite difficult to interpret and if you read the different commentaries you'll find that commentators disagree to a certain extent on exactly how we're to understand the story i want to suggest tonight that we can understand it on three different levels there's a historical level there's a contemporary level and there's an eschatological level Past, present, and future. Let's look at the historical one. That's the easiest one because what Jesus is given in this story, as he'd given in the one before, is a history of God's people, the Jews. God chooses a man, Abraham. Out of that man, he creates a nation, Israel. And he nurtures them and nurses them until eventually, as Paul tells us in Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God prepared a nation for this ultimate event that his own son would be born into it. And yet, with limited exceptions, the Jews would not accept Jesus. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, he, Jesus, came to his own 
but his own did not receive him. In some ways, it wasn't a surprise because down through their history, God had sent his messengers, he'd sent his prophets to the nation. And like the servant sent out by the king, the people ignored them or ill-treated them or killed them. And Jesus' audience would easily have picked up the reference. And now here is Jesus, God himself, with him, with them. What are they going to do with him? Well, we know they're going to crucify him and reject him. Because they reject the invitation that the king is giving. The king in the parable sends his army to destroy and burn the city of these rebels that have killed his servant. And again, this is one of the points where the commentators argue, but it may be that Jesus is making a prophetic reference to events that would happen a few years after his death. Because sometime after the death of Jesus, the Jews did rebel against the Romans and there was a long and and painful siege of Jerusalem and then Jerusalem was taken. And it may be that Jesus is speaking prophetically of that event. Certainly we can see it fit the pattern with hindsight. Here is perhaps the greatest tragedy there could be. That God's special people prepared over hundreds and hundreds of years reject the Son that he sends to them. And yet there's good news in it. And the good news is that God didn't say, okay, well, that's it, all finished. He said, if they will not come, then others must come. And so the gospel was taken out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people like you and me. And Peter is sent to Cornelius, and Philip speaks to the Ethiopian, and Paul goes off on his journeys all around the known world, preaching the gospel, not just in the synagogue to the Jews, but everywhere that he could get a hearing. And the gospel goes out to the whole world. We prayed for the Bens in Uganda at the start of the service. We've got folk from this church all around the world because the gospel is for the whole world. We've got a team in Mexico because the gospel is for the people of Mexico, both in practical terms of building a house and in terms of sharing the good news. The gospel that was rejected by the Jews, by and large, goes out to the world in the grace of God. That's the the historical interpretation of the story. But there's another level that we can understand it, and that's the contemporary level. Now, contemporary, I mean contemporary with Jesus, not contemporary with us. Jesus was talking to people right there beside him, there and then. And he was specifically talking to the religious leaders. You see, of all the people in Israel who might be expected to recognize God when he put in an appearance on the planet, the religious leaders would be top of the list. If you, you know the Bible very well, if you've heard stuff in church, you'll know, you know the religious leaders are the baddies. But actually, if we lived in those times, we wouldn't have thought that. We'd have had them marked down as the goodies, almost the super goodies. Because these were people who devoted their lives to understanding the scriptures, that would have been the, what we call the Old Testament. They spent their lives learning it, memorizing it, understanding it, discussing it, learning what other teachers had said about it down through the years. And more than just learning it and understanding it, they tried to live it out in practice. Yes, there were hypocrites amongst them, as there are amongst all groups of people, and some who bent the rules to their own advantage. But by and large, what they wanted to do was live the way that God had said in his word they should live. 
And you may have heard, you know, that they had hundreds of rules that they had to keep. And the motive behind that was really good because the idea was if you put lots and lots of rules around the rules God had given, you got nowhere near breaking God's rules. It was a kind of fence, a protection to stop you from sinning. Hey, how many of us have set up a protection to stop us from sinning? How many of us say, in this area... I'm not going to go right up to the line and do everything that I can possibly get away with. But actually, I'm going to stop way back so that there's not even the slightest danger that I move into sin. That's not our attitude generally, is it? It's how far can I go and get away with it? These guys said, no, we don't want to go anywhere near sin. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to get any risk of disobeying God. They were good people in that way. But somehow... In all that religion, in all that focusing on God's law, in all that trying to avoid sin, they missed the main point. They missed God himself. And these people who should have been the ones who recognized Jesus were the ones who became his enemies. The ones who turned their back on him. The ones worse who conspired to get him put to death. It's interesting in the parable, isn't it? Do you notice the reasons that people give for not coming? It's not anything drastic. One goes to his field, another to his business. Well, that's reasonable. If you're a farmer or a smallholder, you've got to look after your fields, your animals, that kind of stuff. If you're in business, you've got to maintain your business. There's nothing wrong with that. Sadly, you can miss out on the greatest thing that God has to offer a relationship with him through his son because we're just caught up with the absolutely trivial. You don't have to be a major sinner. You don't have to be a mass murderer or do anything drastic to miss out on God. You can lose it just by being caught up with the day-to-day and the ordinary. I don't doubt that the religious leaders had good theological reasons for rejecting Jesus. It would be interesting for somebody to do a historical study and make a list of all the bad things that have happened for good theological reasons. All the evil that has been done in the name of God and justified through theology. One of the reasons they had for rejecting Jesus was the company he kept. He was claiming to be a rabbi, a teacher. And what rabbis, teachers did was they gathered disciples around them. So they looked at the disciples that followed Jesus. And who were they? Well, people like ignorant fishermen. What's the point of having people like that as your disciples? They hadn't spent time studying the Bible. They weren't people who devoted their lives to living for God. What's the point of having those kind of disciples? And then some of his disciples were tax collectors. Everybody hated tax collectors. Nothing changes, does it? But they had two reasons. One... The tax collectors worked for the Roman authorities. Israel was an occupied country. Nobody liked the people that worked for the Romans. They were regarded as traitors. Secondly, the tax system was fairly flexible. What happened, basically, is there was a certain amount the Roman governor expected to get. But the tax collector was free to get as much from people as he possibly could. And the difference between what the governor wanted and what he collected was his. So he had every motive to cheat and bully and extort and get money from people in any way that he could. 
So here's these guys, a traitor and a thief. And this new rabbi, this Jesus, he has people like that as his disciples. There's no hope for him. And there's worse. What could be worse for your disciples than ignorant fishermen and traitorous tax collectors? Well, in their eyes, there was something far worse. Women. He had women as his disciples. It was unheard of. Rabbis would not even speak to a woman in the street. That was the culture. With minuscule exceptions, no rabbi ever taught women. It was not done. And yet Jesus had women disciples. Now you may think, hang on a minute. He had 12 disciples and they were all men. No, he had 12 apostles that are named and they were all men. But read the Gospels carefully and you will find that there was a group of women traveled with the apostles and with Jesus on his journeys. They were the ones actually who provided for him. Not simply that they did the cooking and the washing. Some of these had wealth that they could access and they paid the bills. And they traveled around with Jesus on his preaching tours, listening to what he was saying. When Jesus sent out the 72 by 2, there would have been women in that group. And we take it for granted. It was shocking and horrifying in those days. It wasn't what anybody from God would do. How can this man be from God if his disciples are ignorant fishermen, traitorous tax collectors, and women? And worse, some of those women were not respectable women. Some of them were prostitutes. Some of them were people, women who'd committed adultery. And he should have known and he should have sent them away and had nothing to do with them lest they can... They corrupt him. But he welcomed them and forgave them. He didn't say what they'd done was right. Didn't say that to anybody that what they'd done was right. Didn't say to the rich people that what they were doing was right. But he welcomed them. And the irony is that these people that the religious leaders despised and said no rabbi, no teacher would have these people as disciples. They're the people the invitation went out to. They're the ones from the street corners, the highways and the byways that are brought into the wedding feast when the guests that were invented, the, invited, the religious leaders turned it down. Good to see you in church. Good thing to come to church. It's a good thing to read the Bible if you do that. If you read it every day, that's a great thing. It's great to pray. Everybody ought to pray. Even if you only half believe in God, pray. It's good to lead a good life, to try and help people, to be kind, to be helpful. But it is possible to be religious and it's possible to lead a good life and actually to miss out entirely on Jesus. You can have all the trappings and miss the person at the center, the one at the core of it all. And that's what these guys did. And that still happens today. That we can be religious and we can miss Jesus. Let's look at this third level that we can understand this parable. That's the eschatological level. Eschatology is the study of the last things. The end of time, the day of judgment, the second coming of Jesus, the end of the world. And the Bible tells us that God has prepared a wedding feast for the end of the world. You find it in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 6 to 9. 
says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The picture of the end of times is a wedding feast. Exactly the same picture that Jesus is using in this parable. A wedding feast in heaven as Jesus the bridegroom marries his bride, the church, his redeemed people. And this is where the bit at the end of the parable comes in. Because that's the bit that makes it difficult for us, isn't it? All this business about the guest who comes without a wedding garment and is thrown out. And not just thrown out, but thrown out into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember hearing a preacher once say that uh, he'd been preaching on this subject and saying that at the end time for those who reject Jesus, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And an elderly lady came up to him and said, I haven't got any teeth. And he said, Madam, teeth will be provided. It's one of those old expressions. It was probably proverbial, but we get the idea it's not going to be nice. And it's difficult to understand what it's all about. Again, it's a point where the commentators argue. Some say there is evidence historically that when a king had a banquet, he would provide a robe for the guests. Each one would be given a robe to wear to the banquet. banquet. And obviously to choose not to wear what the king had given you would have been an insult. Others say, well, there actually isn't a lot of historical evidence for that. That probably isn't what happened. It's just really about the fact that when people went to a banquet, they would put on their best in order to show respect. But it's interesting, that parallel with Revelation, isn't it? Because it talks about fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her. That's the church Christians to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And what Jesus is saying in this sort of footnote to the parable is that down through history, the church will always contain a mixture. There will be those who truly belong to Jesus and have committed their lives to him who have been forgiven, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. There will be those who just come along with a crowd, who claim to be Christians, but actually have no personal experience of God. It's always been so. Think of those 12 apostles that followed Jesus. One of them was Judas. For three years, he looked just like all the others. You couldn't tell he wasn't a real disciple, but in the end, he betrayed Jesus. John, in his gospel, after the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle, he records some teaching of Jesus that's really very challenging, very direct. And he says at the end of it, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Yeah, they were there. They were up for it as long as it was exciting and good things were happening. But when it became tough, they had no real relationship with Jesus. In his first letter, 
John says, talking about people who'd left the church, he says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they'd belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. It's not easy to tell in a church who really belongs to Jesus. And in the ultimate, that will only be shown on the last day. But there is a guide. There is a way in which we can begin to discern whether people are truly following Jesus. And it's this, if we claim to belong to Jesus, and if we claim to be born again and forgiven and have the new life of the Holy Spirit in us, then it should show. And according to that verse in Revelation, that white robe, it should show in the way that we live. Good deeds is perhaps not a good expression for us because it sounds a bit like doing special things, doesn't it? What it actually means is about being like Jesus. You see, God is not demanding perfection. I sometimes think, you know, it would be great, wouldn't it? If you got converted and then you were perfect and you didn't have any more problems, that would be so easy. But it's not what happens. God is not even concerned with where we've got to. It's not about, oh, well, you can be sure you're a Christian when you're spending half an hour a day in prayer. You can be sure you're a Christian when people are queuing up to tell you your problems and you're helping them. No, it's not about where we've got to. It's about the direction we're moving in. We're all at different stages on the journey, but if we really belong to Jesus, we're moving in the same direction, and that's the direction of holiness. And holiness means having a lifestyle that becomes more and more like Jesus. There can be parts of our lives as Christians when we make huge progress in a fairly short period of time and things are transformed in our lives and our behavior and our thinking. There can be other times where we take the tiniest of steps and you can look back on a whole year and think, oh, I haven't got anywhere. There are times when it's two steps forward and one step back. We fail and we screw up and it all goes wrong. But we get up and we start again. The mark of the Christian is that we are moving on, however slowly, however hesitantly, however many problems there are on the way. We're moving on in holiness, moving on and becoming more like Jesus. And the difference between the two, just being religious, just coming along and being part of the crowd and belonging to not belonging to Jesus and those that truly belong to him is absolutely profound because there is a day coming when that will be clear. We don't often preach about judgment and the end times these days, but the Bible is quite clear. A day is coming when God's people and the world will be judged and there'll be no hiding and no pretending. And the parable finishes on a dark note that the man is tied up and thrown outside where there's darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And sometimes people say, well, how can there be a hell? Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Heaven is the banquet feast. Hell is the darkness outside. How can there be a hell if God is a God of love? And the answer is there is a hell because God is a God of love. If God were simply a God of power... He could just snap his fingers and make us all whatever he wanted us to be. And he could plunk us all in heaven. 
But love has to be freely given. If love is compelled or forced or manipulated, it's not love. And a God who says, I want you to love me because I love you more than you can imagine, will see that some people will say, I don't want to love you. I don't want you. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I don't want anything to do with you. And love accepts that. There is a hell because God is a God of love and God will allow people to choose to reject him. We can sum it up by saying everybody in heaven will be there by the grace of God through what Jesus has done on the cross. Everyone in hell will be there of their own free will and by their own choice. There's a great book, which if you haven't read it, it's well worth reading. It's called The Great Divorce. It's by C.S. Lewis. And the, the sort of the background to it is a kind of fantasy. He creates this idea that a group of people from a town on the outskirts of hell have a day trip to the outskirts of heaven. He makes the point in the introduction. He's not saying anything about the reality of heaven and hell. This is just a way of exploring issues. But these people from the outskirts of hell make a day trip to the outskirts of heaven and they meet there people they knew in their earthly life who are now in heaven who try and persuade them to change locations, to move from where they are into the presence of God. And the book is a a series of conversations as they go through all these different arguments with the different people. And it's also a series of excuses just Like the parable, the book could almost be a commentary on this parable. There's a theologian who won't give up the right to debate the existence of God, even to come into the presence of God. There's the cynic who can't believe that any good can come from anything. Oh, this heaven, it's all a con. There's nothing to it, really. There's a person so self-obsessed that they can't see beyond their own eyes. There's a person who grumbled so much through life that their life is now nothing more than a grumble. There's the artist who won't come if he can't be famous. Better be famous in hell than unknown in heaven. There's the person who spent their life controlling other people. And it's not going to come if they can't be in control Once again, and one by one, all these different people refuse the invitation. Only one person, if I remember the book rightly, goes the other way. It's a man, and uh, in the, the, the story, he's got a kind of lizard with him, which follows him everywhere he goes. And the guide that's explaining what's happening says, this lizard is lust. And that's been the man's problem all through his life. And the person who's talking to him says, will will you let it die? Will you let us kill it? And there's a long conversation where he agonizes. No, if you kill it, you'll kill me. And eventually, he says, go on, go on, kill it, do it. And the lizard is killed and it's transformed into something beautiful and the man's life is changed and he moves. And he's one of those who doesn't go back. And that's the key to it all. You see, the entry into heaven is having our old life put to death. That's why so many people don't want it. 
remember years ago seeing a video which was a series of street interviews. And uh, they were saying, who is Jesus? And people were giving all the usual answers. He's a spaceman. He was, didn't exist, all this kind of stuff. Till a, it gets to a young woman, and she says, I believe he was the son of God. I believe he died on the cross for our sins, and that those who commit their lives to him will belong to him. And so the interviewer says, great, are you a Christian? And she says, not likely. That means giving yourself to God. I want to run my own life. You can know the facts and make the wrong decision. After I finished this morning, somebody said to me on the door, you missed out a verse. You didn't say anything about the verse at the end. Many are called and few are chosen. And my excuse or my reason was that actually it's a whole new sermon. But just say a couple of words about it to send you away thinking. It's something we've talked about before, but in the Bible there are two strands that talk about how decisions happen. One is that you and I as human beings have free will. We make real choices which have real consequences both practically and morally and spiritually. The other strand is that God is totally and absolutely in control of everything that happens right down to the last detail. That's called the sovereignty of God. And those two strands go side by side all the way through the Bible. And they don't seem to make sense together. Is it my decision or is it God's decision? But they have to be held together. If you just hold on to free will, in the end you have a God who's impotent, who can do nothing. If you just hold on to the sovereignty of God, in the end you have a God who commits sin. And that's not right either. The two have to be held together. The classic example is in the Old Testament where Moses is going through the plagues in Egypt. And the Bible says about Pharaoh that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three different ways of saying the same thing. And to the ancient Hebrew mind, they would have all meant the same thing. They wouldn't have understood our problem about is it God or is it human beings. Yes, it's both and. And when Jesus says many are called and few are chosen, he's just turning back the thing that he's been talking about. We could say it's another way of saying many are invited, but few decide to say yes. But it just reminds us that God is involved. It's not about a few super saints. In fact, in the parable, there are far more people come to the feast than get thrown out of it. But it is about saying that not everyone who's invited will come. So the feast is ready. The invitations have gone out. They've got your name on it. What have you done with it? Now, if you're somebody that's already responded and said yes to God, great. Make that real in your life. Work out in the day-to-day of everything what it's like to live more like Jesus every day so that other people can see it. And tell other people about it because on your invitation at the bottom it says, bring your friends, as many as possible. It's not an exclusive invitation. When we're invited and we've said yes, we need to bring other people. Or are you someone that's had the invitation? You've heard it preached again and again, but you just sat there. You know what people do with invitations and letters they don't want to think about? You stick it on the mantelpiece behind the clock. You stick it in a drawer. You put it on a desk and you pile other papers around it so you don't have to stop and think. Is that what you've done with the invitation? That God has spoken to you and said, come, 
I want you to be mine. Yeah, it's going to be put into death. Your old life, it's going to be an entirely new life. There's going to be a price for that. Everything's going to change. But actually what I'm inviting you to is something far better than you can imagine. The greatest banquet of your life. And it starts in this life. It doesn't just start when we get to heaven. If you've not responded to that invitation, why not do it tonight? It's not complicated. You don't have to write an RSVP and say, I'm going to be coming. You just have to say to God in your head, yes, God, I really want to say yes to your invitation. I want to be forgiven. I want to start again. I don't know how I'm going to do it or how I'm going to cope, and I don't understand everything about it, but I want to do business with you. And you can do that right here tonight. Sometimes when you do that, it's really helpful to talk to someone or to pray with somebody. When I became a Christian, I said, God, if you're real, take over my life. And nothing happened, so I did it again the next day and the next day for six months. And eventually, I talked to somebody. I realized that God had heard me the first time. It's helpful to talk to somebody. If you want to do that, when the service finishes, just come up to the front. There'll be people that will pray with you, people that will talk with you. But don't put it off. The invitation comes. Maybe it'll come to you many times. Maybe it won't. Maybe tonight is the time when you really have to do business with God or it's going to be gone. If you said yes, live it and tell others. If you've not said yes, say yes tonight. Let's pray together. Father, it's it's scary to think about judgment and heaven and hell. But Father, we know that a time is coming when there will be a separation, when things that are not clear now will be clear, when it will be too late to make decisions. Father, we don't want to come to you because we're afraid of what might happen to us. We want to come to you because you love us so much and you've invited us to something fantastic and beyond our understanding. Father, for those here tonight who don't know you, who've never said yes to that invitation, Father, will you bring them to yourself? And Father, for those of us that know you and love you, help us to live it out in our conversations in our actions, in every part of our lives and help us to share that invitation with others that many, many might come to know Jesus through us. For his name's sake, amen.